Chapter Three of Hereditary Genius by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter Three: Classification of Men According to Their Natural Gifts. I have no patience with the hypothesis occasionally expressed, as often implied, especially in tales written to teach children to be good, that babies are born pretty much alike arid that the sole agencies in creating differences between boy and boy and man and man are steady application and moral effort it is in the most unqualified manner that i object to pretensions of natural equality the experiences of the nursery the school the university and of professional careers are a chain of proofs or to the contrary i acknowledge freely the great power of education and social influences in developing the active powers of the mind just as i acknowledge the effect of use in developing the muscles of a blacksmith's arm and no further though the blacksmith labour as he will he will find there are certain feats beyond his power that are well within the strength of a man of herculean make even although the latter may have led a sedentary life some years ago the highlanders held a grand gathering in holland park where they challenged all england to compete with them in their games of strength the challenge was accepted and the well-trained men of the hills were beaten in the foot race by the youth who was stated to be a pure cockney the clerk of a london banker everybody who has trained himself to physical exercises discovers the extent of his muscular powers to a nicety when he begins to walk to row to use the dumbbells or to run he finds to his great delight that his thews strengthen and his endurance of fatigue increases day after day so long as he is a novice he perhaps flatters himself there is hardly an assignable limit to the education of his muscles but the daily gain is soon discovered to diminish and at last it vanishes altogether his maximum performance becomes a rigidly determined quantity he learns to an inch how high or how far he can jump when he has attained the highest state of training he learns to half a pound the force he can exert on the dynamometer by compressing it he can strike a blow against the machine used to measure impact and drive its index to a certain graduation but no further so it is in running in rowing in walking and in every other form of physical exertion there is a definite limit to the muscular powers of every man which he cannot by any education or exertion overpass this is precisely analogous to the experience that every student has had of the working of his mental powers the eager boy when he first goes to school and confronts intellectual difficulties is astonished at his progress he glories in his newly developed mental grip and growing capacity for application and it may be fondly believes it to be within his reach to become one of the heroes who have left their mark upon the history of the world the years go by he competes in the examinations of school and college over and over again with his fellows and soon finds his place among them he knows he can beat such and such of his competitors that there are some with whom he runs on equal terms and others whose intellectual feats he cannot even approach probably his vanity still continues to tempt him by whispering in a new strain it tells him that classics mathematics and other subjects taught in universities are more scholastic specialities and no test of the more valuable intellectual powers it reminds him of numerous instances of persons who had been unsuccessful in the competitions of youth but who had shown powers in after-life that made them the foremost men of their age accordingly with newly furbished hopes and with all the ambition of twenty-two years of age he leaves his university and enters a larger field of competition the same kind of experience awaits him here that he has already gone through opportunities occur they occur to every man and he finds himself incapable of grasping them he tries and is tried in many things in a few years more unless he is incurably blinded by self-conceit he learns precisely of what performances he is capable and what other enterprises lie beyond his compass when he reaches mature life 
he is confident only within certain limits and knows or ought to know himself just as he is probably judged of by the world with all his unmistakable weaknesses and all his undeniable strength he is no longer tormented into hopeless efforts by the fallacious promptings of overweening vanity but he limits his undertakings to matters below the level of his reach and finds true moral repose in an honest conviction that he is engaged in as much good work as his nature has rendered him capable of performing there can hardly be a surer evidence of the enormous difference between the intellectual capacity of men than the prodigious differences in the number of marks obtained by those who gain mathematical honours at cambridge i therefore crave permission to speak at some length upon this subject although the details are dry and of little general interest there are between four hundred and four hundred and fifty students who take their degrees in each year and of these about one hundred succeed in gaining honours in mathematics and are ranged by the examiners in strict order of merit about the first forty of those who take mathematical honours are distinguished by the title of wranglers and it is a decidedly credible thing to be even a low wrangler it will secure a fellowship in a small college it must be carefully borne in mind that the distinction of being the first in this list of honours or what is called the senior wrangler of the year means a vast deal more than being the foremost mathematician of four hundred or four hundred fifty men taken at haphazard no doubt the larger bulk of cambridge men are taken almost at haphazard a boy is intended by his parents for some profession if that profession be either the church or the bar it used to be almost requisite and it is still important that he should be sent to cambridge or oxford these youths may justly be considered as having been taken at haphazard but there are many others who have fairly won their way to the universities and are therefore selected from an enormous area fully one half of the wranglers have been boys of note at their respective schools and conversely almost all boys of note at schools find their way to the universities here it is that among their comparatively small number of students the universities include the highest youthful scholastic ability of all england the senior wrangler in each successive year is the chief of these as regards mathematics and this the highest distinction is or was continually won by youths who had no mathematical training of importance before they went to cambridge all their instruction had been received during the three years of their residence at the university now i do not say anything here about the merits or demerits of cambridge mathematical studies having been directed along a too narrow groove or about the presumed disadvantages of ranging candidates in strict order of merit instead of grouping them as at oxford in classes where the names appear alphabetically arranged all i am concerned with here are the results and these are most appropriate to my argument the youths start on their three years race as fairly as possible they are then stimulated to run by the most powerful inducements namely those of competition of honour and of future wealth for a good fellowship is wealth and at the end of the three years they are examined most rigorously according to a system that they all understand and are equally well prepared for the examination lasts five and a half hours a day for eight days all the answers are carefully marked by the examiners who add up the marks at the end and range the candidates in strict order of merit the fairness and thoroughness of cambridge examinations have never had a breath of suspicion cast upon them unfortunately for my purposes the marks are not published they are not even assigned on a uniform system since each examiner is permitted to employ his own scale of marks but whatever the scale he uses the results as to proportional merit are the same i am indebted to a cambridge examiner for a copy of his marks in respect to two examinations in which the scales of marks were so alike as to make it easy by a slight proportional adjustment to compare the two together this was to a certain degree a confidential communication so that it would be improper for me to publish anything that would identify the years to which these marks refer 
I simply give them as groups of figures, sufficient to show the enormous differences of merit. The lowest man in the list of honours gains less than 300 marks, the lowest wrangler gains about 1,500 marks, and the senior wrangler in one of the lists now before me gained more than 7,500 marks. Consequently, the lowest wrangler has more than five times the merit of the lowest junior optime, and less than one-fifth the merit of the senior wrangler. The results of two years are thrown into a single table. The total number of marks obtainable in each year was 17,000. Table is displayed on the page with two columns. Number of marks obtained by candidates and the number of candidates in two years taken together who obtained those marks. Under 500, 24 candidates. 500 to 1,000, 74 candidates. 1,000 to 1,500, 38 candidates. 1,500 to 2,000, 21 candidates. 2,000 to 2,500, 11 candidates. 2,500 to 3,000, 8 candidates. 3,000 to 3,500, 11 candidates. 3,500 to 4,000, 5 candidates. 4,000 to 4,500, 2 candidates. 4,500 to 5,000, 1 candidate. 5,000 to 5,500, 3 candidates. 5,500 to 6,000, 1 candidate. 5,000 to 7,500, 0 candidates. 7,500 to 8,000, 1 candidate. Total 200 candidates. The precise number of marks obtained by the senior wrangler in the more remarkable of these two years was 7,634, by the second wrangler in the same year, 4,123, and by the lowest man in the list, 237. Consequently, the senior wrangler obtained nearly twice as many marks as the second wrangler, and more than 32 times as many as the lowest man. I have received from another examiner the marks of a year in which the senior wrangler was conspicuously eminent. He obtained 9,422 marks, whilst the second in the same year, whose merits were by no means inferior to those of second wranglers in general, obtained only 5,642. The man at the bottom of the same honour list had only 309 marks, or one-thirtieth the number of the senior wrangler. I have some particulars of a fourth very remarkable year, in which the senior wrangler obtained no less than ten times as many marks as the second wrangler, in the problem paper. Now I have discussed with practice examiners the question of how far the numbers of marks may be considered as proportionate to the mathematical power of the candidate, and am assured they are strictly proportionate as regards the lower places, but do not afford full justice to the highest. In other words, the senior wranglers above mentioned had more than 30 or 32 times the ability of the lowest men on the list of honours. They would be able to grapple with problems more than 32 times as difficult, or when dealing with subjects of the same difficulty, but intelligible to all, would comprehend them more rapidly in perhaps the square root of that proportion. It is reasonable to expect that Marx would do some injustice to the very best men, because a very large part of the time of the examination is taken up by the mechanical labour of writing. Whenever the thought of the candidate outruns his pen, he gains no advantage from his excess of promptitude in conception. I should, however, mention that some of the ablest men have shown their superiority by comparatively little writing. They find their way at once to the root of the difficulty in the problem that are set, and with a few cleaner prostate powerful strokes succeed in proving they can overthrow it, and then they can go on to another question. Every word they write tells. Thus the late Mr. H. Leslie Ellis, who was a brilliant senior wrangler in 1840 and whose name is familiar to many generations of Cambridge men as a prodigy of universal genius, did not even remain during the full period in the examination room. 
his health was weak, and he had to husband his strength. The mathematical powers of the last man on the list of honours, which are so low when compared with those of a senior wrangler, are mediocre, or even above mediocrity, when compared with the gifts of Englishmen generally. Though the examination places 100 honour men above him, it puts no less than 300 poll men below him. Even if we go so far as to allow that 200 out of the 300 refuse to work hard enough to get honours, there will remain 100 who, even if they worked hard, could not get them. Every tutor knows how difficult it is to drive abstract conceptions, even of the simplest kind, into the brains of most people. How feeble and hesitating is their mental grasp, how easily their brains are mazed, how incapable they are of precision and soundness of knowledge. It often occurs to persons familiar with some scientific subject to hear men and women of mediocre gifts relate to one another what they have picked up about it from some lecture, say at the Royal Institution, where they have sat for an hour listening with delighted attention to an admirably lucid account illustrated by experiments of the most perfect and beautiful character, in all of which they express themselves intensely gratified and highly instructed. It is positively painful to hear what they say. The recollections seem to be a mere chaos of mist of misapprehension. To some sort of shape and organisation has been given by the action of their own pure fancy, although alien to what the lecturer intended to convey. The average mental grasp, even of what is called a well-educated audience, will be found to be ludicrously small when rigorously tested. In stating the differences between man and man, let it not be supposed for a moment that mathematicians are necessarily one-sided in their natural gifts. There are numerous instances of the reverse, of which the following will be found, as instances of hereditary genius, in an appendix to my chapter on science. I would especially name Leibniz as being universally gifted, but Ampere, Arago, Condorcet, D'Alembert, were all of them very far more than mere mathematicians. Nay, say the range of examination at Cambridge is so extended as to include other subjects besides mathematics, the differences of ability between the highest and lowest of the successful candidates is yet more glaring than what I have already described. We still find, on the one hand, mediocre men, whose whole energies are absorbed in getting their 237 marks for mathematics, and on the other hand, some few senior wranglers, who are at the same time high classical scholars and much more besides. Cambridge has afforded such instances. Its lists of classical honours are comparatively of recent date, but other evidence is obtainable from earlier times of their occurrence. Thus, Dr. George Butler, the headmaster of Harrow for many years, including the period when Byron was a schoolboy, father of the present headmaster, and of other sons, two of whom are also headmasters of great public schools, must have attained that classical office on account of his eminent classical ability. But Dr. Butler was also a senior wrangler in 1794, the year when Lord Chancellor Lyndhurst was second. Both Dr. Kane, the late Bishop of Lincoln, and Sir E. Alderson, the late judge, were the senior wranglers and the first classical prizemen of their respective years. Since 1824, when the classical tripos was first established, the late Mr. Goulburn, brother of Dr. Goulburn, Dean of Norwich, and son of the well-known Sergeant Goulburn, was second wrangler in 1835 and senior classic at the same year. But in more recent times, the necessary labour of preparation in order to acquire the highest mathematical places has become so enormous that there has been a wider differentiation of studies. There is no longer time for a man to acquire the necessary knowledge to succeed in the first place in more than one subject. There are, therefore, no instances of a man being absolutely first in both examinations. 
but a few can be found of high eminence in both classics and mathematics. As a reference to the lists published in the Cambridge calendar will show, the best of the more recent degrees appears to be that of Dr. Barry, late principal of Cheltenham, and now principal of King's College, London, the son of the eminent architect Sir Charles Barry, and brother of Mr. Edward Barry, who succeeded his father as architect. He was fourth wrangler and seventh classic of his year. In whatever we may test ability, we arrive at equally enormous intellectual differences. Lord Macaulay, see under literature, for his remarkable kinships, had one of the most tenacious of memories. He was able to recall many pages of hundreds of volumes by various authors, which he had acquired by simply reading them over. An average man could not certainly carry in his memory one thirty-second, a or one-hundredth part as much as Lord Macaulay. The father of Seneca had one of the greatest memories on record in ancient times. See under literature for his kinships. Porson, the Greek scholar was remarkable for his gift, and, I may add, the Porson memory was hereditary in that family. In statesmanship, generalship, literature, science, poetry, art, just the same enormous differences are found between man and man, and numerous instances recorded in this book will show in how small degree eminence, either in these or any other class of intellectual powers, can be considered as due to purely special powers. They are rather to be considered in those instances as a result of concentrated efforts made by men who are widely gifted. People lay too much stress on apparent specialities, thinking over rashly that because a man is devoted to some particular pursuit, he could not possibly have succeeded in anything else. They might just as well say that because a youth had fallen desperately in love with a brunette, he could not possibly have fallen in love with a blonde. He may or may not have more natural liking for the former type of beauty than the latter, but it is as probable as not that the affair was mainly or wholly due to a general amorousness of disposition. It is just the same with special pursuits. A gifted man is often capricious and fickle before he selects his occupation, but when it has been chosen he devotes himself to it with a truly passionate ardour. After a man of genius has selected his hobby and so adapted himself to it as to seem unfitted for any other occupation in life, and to be possessed of but one of special aptitude, I often notice with admiration how well he bears himself with the circumstances suddenly thrust him into a strange position. He will display an insight into new conditions and a power of dealing with them, with which even his most intimate friends were unprepared to accredit him. Many a presumptuous fool has mistaken indifference and neglect for incapacity, and in trying to throw a man of genius on ground where he was unprepared for attack, has himself received a most severe and unexpected fall. I am sure that no one who has had the privilege of mixing in the society of the abler man of any great capital, or who is acquainted with the biographies of the heroes of history, can doubt the existence of grand human animals, of natures pre-eminently noble, of individuals born to be kings of men. I have been conscious of no sight misgiving that I was committing a kind of sacrilege whenever, in the preparation of materials for this book, I had occasion to take the measurement of modern intellects vastly superior to my own or to criticise the genius of the most magnificent historical specimens of our race. It was a process that constantly recalled to me a once familiar sentiment in bygone days of African travel, when I used to take altitudes of the huge cliffs that domineered above me as I travelled along their bases, or to map the mountains and landmarks of unvisited tribes that loomed in faint grandeur beyond my actual horizon. I have not cared to occupy myself much with people whose gifts are below the average, but they would be an interesting study. 
The number of idiots and imbeciles among the 20 million inhabitants of England and Wales is approximately estimated at 50,000, or as 1 in 400. Dr. Seguin, a great French authority on these matters, states that more than 30% of idiots and imbeciles put under suitable instruction have been taught to conform to social and moral law and rendered capable of order, of good feeling, and of working like the third of an average man. He says that for more than 40% have become capable of the ordinary transactions of life under friendly control, of understanding moral and social abstractions, and of working like two-thirds of a man. And lastly, that from 25 to 30% come nearer and nearer to the standard of manhood, till some of them will defy the scrutiny of good judges when compared with ordinary young men and women. In the order next above idiots and imbeciles are a large number of milder cases scattered among private families and kept out of sight, the existence of whom is, however, well known to relatives and friends. They are too silly to take a part in general society, but are easily amused with some trivial harmless occupation. Then comes a class of whom the Lord Dundreary of the famous play may be considered a representative. And so, proceeding through successive grades, we gradually ascend to mediocrity. I know two good instances of hereditary silliness, sort of imbecility, and have reason to believe I could easily obtain a large number of similar facts. To conclude the range of mental power between, I will not say the highest Caucasian and the lowest savage, but between the greatest and least of English intellects, is enormous. There is a continuity of natural ability reaching from one knows not what height and descending to one can hardly say what depth. I propose in this chapter to range men according to their natural abilities, putting them into classes separated by equal degrees of merit, and to show the relative number of individuals included in the several classes. Perhaps some persons might be inclined to make an offhand guess that the number of men included in the several classes would be pretty equal. If he thinks so, I can assure him he is most egregiously mistaken. The method I shall employ for discovering all this is an application of the very curious theoretical law of deviation from the average. First I will explain the law, and then I will show that the production of natural intellectual gifts comes justly within its scope. The law is an exceedingly general one. M. Quidlet, the Astronomer Royal of Belgium, and the greatest authority on vital and social statistics, has largely used it in his inquiries. He has also conducted numerical tables by which the necessary calculations can be easily made whenever it is desired to have recourse to the law. Those who wish to learn more than I have space to relate should consult his work, which is a very readable octavo volume, and deserves to be far better known to statisticians than it appears to be. His title is Letters on Probabilities, translated by Downs, Leighton and Co., London, 1849. So much has been published in recent years about statistical deductions that I am sure the reader will be prepared to assert freely to the following hypothetical case. Suppose a large island inhabited by a single race, who intermarried freely and who had lived for many generations under constant conditions, then the average height of the male adults of that population would undoubtedly be the same year after year. Also, still arguing from the experience of modern statistics, which are found to give constant results in far less carefully guarded examples, we should undoubtedly find, year after year, the same proportion maintained between the number of men of different heights. I mean, if the average stature was found to be 66 inches, and if it was also found in any one year that 100 per million exceeded 78 inches, the same proportion of 100 per million would be closely maintained in all other years. An equal constancy of proportion would be maintained between any other limits of height we please to specify, as between 71 and 72 inches. 
between 72 and 73 inches and so on. Statistical experiences are so invariably conformatory of what I have stated would probably be the case as to make it unnecessary to describe analogous instances. Now at this point the law of deviation from an average steps in. It shows that the number per million whose heights range between 71 and 72 inches or between any other limits we please to name can be predicted from the previous datum of the average and of any one other fact such as that of 100 per million exceeding 78 inches. The diagram on page 28 will make this more intelligible. Suppose a million of the men who stand in turns with their backs against a vertical board of sufficient height and their heights to be dotted off upon it. The board would then present the appearance shown in the diagram. The line of average height is that which divides the dots into two equal parts and stands in the case we have assumed at the height of 66 inches. The dots will be found to be ranged so symmetrically on either side of the line of average that the lower half of the diagram will be almost a precise reflection of the upper. Next, let a hundred dots be counted from above downwards, and let a line be drawn below them. According to the conditions, this line will stand at the height of 78 inches. Using the data afforded by these two lines, it is possible, by the help of the law of deviation from the average, to reproduce with an extraordinary closeness the entire system of dots on the board. M. Quidlet gives tables in which the uppermost line, instead of cutting off 100 in a million, cuts off only 1 in a million. He divides the intervals between the line and the line of the average into 80 equal divisions and gives the number of dots that fall within each of those deviations. It is easy, by the help of his tables, to calculate what would occur under any other system of classification we please to adopt. This law of deviation from an average is perfectly general in its application. Thus, if the marks had been made by bullets fired at a horizontal line stretched in front of the target, they would have been distributed according to the same law, where a large number of similar events, each due to the resultant influences of the same variable conditions, two effects will follow. First, the average value of those events will be constant, and secondly, the deviations of the several events from the average will be governed by this law, which is in principle the same as that which governs runs of luck at a gaming table. The nature of the conditions affecting the several events must, I say, be the same. It clearly would not be proper to combine the heights of men belonging to two dissimilar races in the expectation that the compound results would be governed by the same constants. A union of two dissimilar systems of dots would produce the same kind of confusion as if half the bullets fired at a target had been directed to one mark, and the other half at another mark. Nay, an examination of the dots would show to a person ignorant of what had occurred that such had been the case, and it would be possible, by aid of the law, to disentangle two or any moderate number of superimposed series of marks. The law may, therefore, be used as a most trustworthy criterion, whether or no the events of which an average has been taken are due to the same or to dissimilar classes of conditions. I selected the hypothetical case of a race of men living on an island and freely intermarrying to ensure the conditions under which they were all supposed to live, being uniform in character. It will now be my aim to show there is sufficiently uniformity in the inhabitants of the British Isles to bring them fairly within the grasp of this law. For this purpose, I first call attention to an example given in Quetelet's book. It is of the measurements of the circumferences of the chests of a large number of Scotch soldiers. The Scotch are by no means a strictly uniform race, nor are they exposed to identical conditions. 
They are a mixture of Celts, Danes, Anglo-Saxons, and others in various proportions, the Highlanders being almost purely Celts. On the other hand, these races, though diverse in origin, are not very dissimilar in character. Consequently, it will be found that their deviations from the average follow theoretical computations with remarkable accuracy. The instance is as follows. M. Quidlet obtained his facts from the 13th volume of the Edinburgh Medical Journal, where the measurements are given in respect to 5,738 soldiers. The results being grouped in order of magnitude, proceeding by differences of one each. Professor Quidlet compares these results with those that his tables give, and here is the result. The marvellous accordance between fact and theory must strike the most unpractised eye. I should say that, for the sake of convenience, both the measurements and calculations have been reduced to per thousandth. A table is displayed on the page, with six columns going down, measurement of the chest in inches, number of men per 1,000 by experience, number of men per 1,000 by calculation, measures of the chest in inches, number of men per 1,000 by experience, number of men per 1,000 by calculation. I will now take a case where there is a greater dissimilarity in the elements of which the average has been taken. It is the height of 100,000 French conscripts. There is fully as much variety in the French as in the English, for it is not very many generations since France was divided into completely independent kingdoms. Among its peculiar races are those of Normandy, Brittany, Alsatia, Provence, Bern, Auvergne, each with their special characteristics. Yet the following table shows a most striking agreement between the results of experience compared with those derived by calculations from a purely theoretical hypothesis. A table is displayed on the page, height of men in inches, and the number of men divided between measured and calculated. The greatest differences are in the lowest ranks. They include the men who were rejected for being too short for the army. M. Quetelet boldly ascribes these differences to the effect of fraudulent returns. It certainly seems that men have been improperly taken out of the second rank and put into the first in order to exempt them from service. Be this as it may, the coincidence of fact with theory is, in this instance also, quite close enough to serve my purpose. I argue from the results obtained from Frenchmen and from Scotchmen that if we had measurements of the adult males in the British Isles, we should find those measurements to range in close accordance with the law of deviation from the average although our population is as much mingled as i described that of scotland to have been and although ireland is mainly peopled of celts now if this be the case with stature then it will be true as regards every other physical feature as circumference of head size of brain weight of grey matter number of brain fibres etc and thence by a step on which no physiologist will hesitate as regards mental capacity this is what i am driving at that analogy clearly shows there must be a fairly constant average mental capacity in the inhabitants of the British Isles, and that the deviations from the average, upwards towards genius and downwards towards stupidity, must follow the law that governs deviations from all true averages. I have, however, done somewhat more than rely on analogy. I have tried the results of those examinations in which the candidates have been derived from the same classes. Most persons have noticed the lists of successful competitors for various public appointments that are published from time to time in the newspapers with the marks gained by each candidate attached to his name. These lists contain far too few names to fall into such beautiful accordance with theory as was the case with the Scotch soldiers. There are rarely more than 100 names in any one of these examinations while the chests of no less than 5,700 Scotsmen were measured. 
I cannot justly combine the marks of several independent examinations into one faggot, for I understand that different examiners are apt to have different figures of merit, so I have analysed each examination separately. I give a calculation I made on the examination last before me. It will do as well as any other. It was for admission into the Royal Military College at Sandhurst, December 1868. The marks obtained were clustered most thickly about 3,000, so I take that number as representing the average ability of the candidates. From this datum, and from the fact that no candidate obtained more than 6,500 marks, I computed the column B in the following table by the help of Quetelet's numbers. It will be seen that column B accords with column A quite as closely as the small number of persons examined could have led us to expect. A table is displayed on the page of five columns. The number of marks obtained by candidates, and the number of candidates who obtained those marks, subdivided according to fact with a total, and according to theory with a total. An additional section with either did not venture to compete, or were plucked. The symmetry of the descending branch has been rudely spoilt by the conditions stated at the foot of column A. There is, therefore, little room for doubt if everybody in England had to work object then to pass before examiners who employed similar figures of merit, that their marks would be found to range according to the law of deviation from an average, just as previously as the heights of French conscripts or the circumferences of the chests of Scotch soldiers. The number of grades into which we may divide ability is purely a matter of option. We may consult our convenience by sorting Englishmen into a few large classes or into many small ones. I will select a system of classification that shall be easily comparable with the numbers of eminent men as described in the previous chapter. We have seen that 250 men per million became eminent accordingly. I have so contrived the classes in the following table that the two highest, F and G, together with X, which includes all cases beyond G, and which are unclassed shall amount to about that number, namely, to 248 per million. A table is displayed on the page, classification of men according to their natural gifts. Tables divide up in several columns, grades of natural ability separated by equal intervals, subdivided between below average and above average. Another set of columns, numbers of men comprised into the several grades of natural ability, whether in respect to their general powers or to special aptitudes. It is subdivided again into proportionate, viz. one in, in each million of the same age, and finally in a total male population of the United Kingdom, viz. 15 millions of the undetermined ages, which is subdivided again into six separate columns of 20 to 30, 30 to 40, 40 to 50, 50 to 60, 60 to 70, and 70 to 80. The proportions of men at different ages are calculated from the proportions that are true for England and Wales, census 1861, appendix page 107. Example, the class F contains one in every 4,300 men. In other words, there are 233 of that class in each million of men. The same is true of class F. In the whole United Kingdom, there are 590 men of class F, and the same number of F between ages 20 and 30, 450 between the ages of 30 and 40, and so on. It will, I trust, be clearly understood that the numbers of men in the several classes in my table depend on no uncertain hypothesis. They are determined by the assured law of deviations from an average. It is an absolute fact that if we pick out of each million the one man who is naturally the ablest, and also the one man who is the most stupid, and divided the remaining 999,998 men into 14 classes, 
the average ability in each being separated from that of its neighbours by equal grades then the numbers in each of those classes will on the average of many millions be as is stated in the table the table may be applied as special just as truly as to general ability it would be true for every examination that brought out natural gifts whether held in painting in music or in statesmanship the proportions between the different classes would be identical in all these cases although the classes would be made up of different individuals according as the examination differed in its purport it will be seen that more than half of each million is contained in the two mediocre classes lowercase a and capital a the four mediocre classes lowercase a lowercase b capital a capital b contain more than four-fifths and the six mediocre classes more than nineteen twentieths of the entire population thus the rarity of commanding ability and the vast abundance of mediocrity is no accident but follows of necessity from the very nature of these things the meaning of the word mediocrity admits of little doubt it defines the standard of intellectual power found in most provincial gatherings because the attractions of a more stirring life in the metropolis and elsewhere are apt to draw away the able classes of men and the silly and the imbecile do not take a part in the gatherings hence the residuum that forms the bulk of the general society of small provincial places is commonly very pure in its mediocrity the class c possesses abilities a trifle higher than those commonly possessed by the foreman of the ordinary jury d includes the mass of men who obtain the ordinary prizes of life e is a stage higher then we reach f the lowest of those yet superior classes of intellect with which this volume is chiefly concerned on descending the scale we find by the time we have reached lowercase f that we are already among the idiots and imbeciles we have seen in page twenty five there are four hundred idiots and imbeciles to every million of persons living in this country but that thirty per cent of their number appears to be light cases to whom the name of idiot is inappropriate there will remain two hundred and eighty true idiots and imbeciles to every million of our population this ratio coincides very closely with the requirements of class lowercase f no doubt a certain proportion of them are idiotic owing to some fortuitous cause which may interfere with the working of a naturally good brain much as a bit of dirt may cause a first-grade chronometer to keep worse time than an ordinary watch but i presume from the usual smallness of head and absence of disease among these persons that the proportion of accidental idiots cannot be very large hence we arrive at the undeniable but unexpected conclusion that eminently gifted men are raised as much above mediocrity as idiots are depressed below it a fact that is calculated to considerably enlarge our ideas of the enormous differences of intellectual gifts between man and man i presume the class uppercase f of dogs and other of more intelligent sort of animals is nearly commensurate with the lower class f of the human race in respect to memory and powers of reason certainly the class uppercase g of such animals is far superior to the lowercase g of humankind End of chapter 3 of Hereditary Genius